0: Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you excellent and interesting content. From inspiring you to teach or supervise more effectively, to leading and managing your own team, to thinking about creative or humanistic ways to do your work, and finally, to build up your skills in scholarly practice. We welcome you to sit back Listen and enjoy the latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. In collaboration with the team at Merit McMaster's Education Research, Innovation, and Theory Program in the Faculty of Health Sciences, we bring you our Good Pie subseries on Good Practices in Education. Our Merit scientists and scholars share their education research expertise with us, so we can enhance our own teaching practices. We've included an infographic with each episode to summarize the highlights of our discussion. Join us for a slice of good pie. In this episode,
1: we listen to Dr. Jeffrey Norman talk about transfer learning. He discusses topics such as what
0: transfer learning is, some strategies to facilitate transfer learning, and microtesting. We hope you enjoy. Welcome everyone to our next episode. And today I have the privilege of speaking with Jeff Norman. And Jeff, you are very well known in our health sciences community, but I'll still have you introduce yourself to those that might not know you.
1: Some people introduce me as a fallen physicist. Oh, no.
0: (laughs) Okay, Um, that's one way to start.
1: (laughs) One wonders what I should, well, actually, There's a story in all that, in that um, you may end up cutting this out, but I do really do have a PhD in nuclear physics that many people know. Unfortunately, I wasn't smart enough to turn it into a job prospect, so I never did. One way or another, I stumbled into health sciences education at McMaster because I was at McMaster at the time. And sometime down the road after being a research associate in education, I shipped off to Michigan State University to get a master's in educational psychology. And I was so excited because I was going to learn how people learn. Being a physicist, you always knock the back off the alarm clock to see how it works and never are able to put it back together again. But that's, that's, the, that's a, a worldview, really. So I was going to find out all about learning right at the core. And I ended up in the Ed Psych program. I found out what I found about was teaching, how to organize your behavior, your objectives, and how to assess knowledge, transfer, and blah, 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 blah. And I never found out a thing about learning. And then what happened was I came back to Hamilton and Hamilton has a very, very strong cognitive psychology department, or they did. And so I started schmoozing with those guys and suddenly discovered that there's two solitudes that the cognitive psychologists, the research psychologists, they're also preoccupied with learning, but with the point of view of learning amounts to, for them, it's putting stuff into memory and getting it out again. And that's their worldview. They don't, care about classroom management or behavioral objectives or any of that stuff. All they care about is the fundamental mechanisms of learning. And suddenly it dawned on me why I got nothing out of the EdSite program and everything out of the CogSite colleagues. Mm. Because the EdSite program was, was in the Faculty of Education and was geared to teachers. And the CogSite program is in the Faculty of Science, the psychology department, and it's geared to understanding learning. And so the the irony is that transfer is a concept which is very rich in the psychology and virtually absent in education. Let's start then by talking about what is transfer anyway.
0: Well, before you even start that, can I read a paragraph that you sent me beforehand? Because I got a kick out of this, and I thought it would be funny to also read it to the listeners. And this will set you up to talk about your topic of transfer. So this was hilarious. You said... One concept in learning that many psychologists consider fundamental is transfer. Sadly, most educators have never heard of it. When I say transfer, it mutates to transference, knowledge transfer, transcendentalism, or some other obscure term, but it's none of the above. So your topic we're talking about today is transfer. So tell me, Jeff, what is transfer?
1: You just took my opening line away from me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> don't okay, now I'll have to fumble a bit. The basic idea is this. Transfer is very simply like this. It's using the knowledge you already have to solve new problems. Arguably, that's what most of education is about. Now, you know, Shakespearean scholars don't solve problems much. Talmudic scholars don't solve problems much. No, not at all, in fact. Art history majors don't solve problems. But a lot of education, certainly professional education, is all about acquiring knowledge so that you can use that to solve new problems that are to some degree greater, lesser, similar, or not similar to the ones you've already learned from. And the trouble is, is that teachers have this innate idea that there's nothing to it. That as teachers, their basic idea is that we're we're the ones who transfer the knowledge to you. We impart it to the students. We test you on that so we know you've got it. And so we're done. So you're wrong. You've got the knowledge. It's kind of a leaky pail of, <laughs> of learning where we know that it leaks out. But for the moment, our job is simply to fill the pail and get out of there while the going's good. Trouble is that it massively underestimates how difficult it is to get the knowledge when you need it. It's not that you forget. Memory is a funny thing. Forgetting is forgetting. basically doesn't happen. What happens is lack of access to it. Last night, Pam and I were watching an old documentary about Sammy Davis Jr. And there was a quick shot between Sammy Davis and some British singer we both recognized, but couldn't figure out mm. where we'd seen him from. And in the middle of the night, it hit me. Anthony oh. knew, send in the clowns. Anthony mm. knew. There it was. So that had been dormant in memory for about 45 years. And yet, given the right context, it's back again. Turns out that that's, that's the central issue, that it's given the right context. The fact of the matter is that. Being able to access that memory is much notoriously, much more difficult than we think it would be. We think that you're, all we have to do is give them the knowledge and it can help come out again, but that just isn't the case. Transfer actually has a long, long history and it's gone from black to white to gray. If you think back to the old days of schooling when, you, when students, and myself included, had to take a Latin course. Why did you take a Latin course? Because it was teaching you linguistic skills and it was the mother of all language. And so, if you learn Latin, everything else would come easy. You would have that knowledge available to you. So, it was massively far transferred. The illusion was that Latin would enable you to learn Spanish and Dutch and German mm. and Mandarin. Ain't so. <laughs> so, that was far transfer. That was popular around the 900s. Your students learned Latin. They learned, they memorized poems. Why? To exercise their memory muscles. Mm. It was really the model. And the sad part is that that was very popular around 1900 to 1920 or so. Thorndyke, one of the grandfathers of education, totally disproved that model in 1915. But 50 years later, I was taking a course in Latin. Figure. So that was general transfer. That died when behaviorism came along. Remember behaviorism? Skinner and, mm-hmm. the, love and the dogs and the slobbering. If you think about that in terms of a transfer model, that's zero transfer. That says the only thing you can possibly learn and and the only thing you can possibly retrieve is what I taught you and reinforced for you. So transfer didn't exist. The idea of using knowledge in a creative way to solve a new, different problem doesn't happen in a behaviorist model. Mm. So we went from all to nothing. And then finally, about 1970 or so, things came back to normal, and the cognitive psychologist came along and said, now it's neither of the above. Transfer happens because otherwise society couldn't work. We would be stuck with the same fixed bag of knowledge, but it doesn't happen easily. Learned concepts can be applied with difficulty to new problems. And that's the central thing I wanna talk about is what we can do to facilitate that process of accessing the knowledge you already have to solve a new problem.
0: That's great because this is our audience that's listening to this episode are clinicians, they're educators that want to know, what can I learn from you about transfer to apply to my teaching context and with my interactions with learners?
1: That's the name of the game. Let me give you a quick example. Now, this is a standard paradigm. This is a, an experimental paradigm that was first used in 1980 and still kicking on. Let me give you the fortress problem. To, to, to cut, cut to the quick, there's a fortress in the middle of an island and it's surrounded by roads radiating out from the fortress, like the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. The trouble is that if you want to capture the fortress, you're the invading general. You can put the soldiers on the roads because there's no mines there. But if they go in the fields, they're going to get blown up by landmines. So what do you do? Because it takes a 1,000 soldiers to conquer the fortress, but you can only put 100 on each road. Duh! You blow off a flat cannon or you wave a flag or you shoot some fireworks and off they all go. They hit at the same time and that's it. Done. It's a problem of multiple radiating pathways, simultaneous mm-hmm. multiple radiating pathways. I now give you a second problem. Half an hour later, half an hour later, this is with the student. The tumor problem. You have a malignant tumor in the center of your belly. You want to burn it out with radiation. That's what radiation oncologists do for a living. So how do you do it? Well, how do you do that? How do you hit the tumor without burning all the surrounding tash- tissue? So you hit it from various directions all at the same time, and you, you get a maximum dose of the tumor and minimum dose of the surrounding tissue. Job done. Mm. Students who have learned the first problem and had the problem ex- explained to them, their chances of solving the second problem a half an hour later is about 30%. A half an hour later. Transfer doesn't happen. Why is that? Because I gave you a massive cue about the first problem, multiple radiating pathways. As soon as I said that, I revealed the deep conceptual structure of the problem. And so then when you encountered another problem with a totally different context, you could still mobilize the idea of what's the deep structure of the problem and transcend the two contexts. The difficulty is that people don't do that naturally. It takes extra mental effort. to mm. Probe deeper, deeply and proactively to get to the central idea what is really going on with this problem. And when you think about it, so much of what we call problem solving, psychologists call analogical problem solving. Basically, a lot of your mental effort is, oh yeah, this one is
0: like that
1: one. So for example, do you know what uh, Laplace Law is, Ruth?
0: I remember you mentioning that once, or maybe more than once in our conversations, but I don't remember
1: it. So Laplace Law is... it's it's congestive heart failure, it's left ventricular failure. The tension in the wall of the vessel, of the cylinder, let's say, is the product of the pressure difference across the wall and the radius of the wall. So the bigger the radius, the more tension for the same amount of pressure. That's why you get into with left ventricular hypertrophy, you get into bigger vessels, which actually have to have thicker walls, but still don't pump as efficient, because the radius is increased. That also models why a bicycle tire has a thin wall and a car tire has a thick wall. That also models, if you look at airplanes, a Boeing 747 Jumbo has to have a thicker aluminum skin than a Boeing 737, which is half the size, because it's twice the radius of the fuselage. So there, this is like that. Mm. And so the analogy is powerful, but in order to get to the analogy, you have to dig deep for the deep structure of the problem, And that's what transfer is all about, because People don't do it naturally, etc. Yeah.
0: So, so, as educators, then you're you're saying we need to dig, it, or we need to identify the deep learning concept. Uh, tell me, yes.
1: You're, you're Ed McMahon to my Johnny Carson. Thank you.
0: Oh, am I? Oh, I'm setting yeah. you up perfectly. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> an obvious thing is see that's why we teach the conceptual knowledge first, and then we give them a sample problem. Job done. See, I've been doing it all the one. What are you trying to tell me? This is new. <laughs> no. No. Work. Because the next slide of my formal talk is, why don't you just teach them the principle? Then you can mm-hmm. give them an example and done it. And, of course, we've been doing that in education for millennia, right? And I'll plow through the chapter, and then I'll give you the problems at the end of the chapter to work on. And Right. Now you've got it. Trouble is, trouble is that the, the contextual knowledge, the real concrete features are so hardwired. You know, that's a saber-toothed tiger. It's not a particular example of a mammal. It's a saber-toothed tiger. Why? Because it looks like a saber-toothed tiger. What happens then is that the principle, you just people just don't naturally disentangle the underlying principle from the from the surface structure. And so mm-hmm. they remember it, even though they've learned the principle, they remember it as the saber-toothed tiger problem, not mm-hmm. the mammal. Mm-hmm. So they still now when they go to retrieve it, they can't get to it because it's and this is hard. This is hard ideas about the nature of human memory. You can't get retrieval pathways because you, don't, you haven't built up the right retrieval strategies. Right? Mm. That's, that's the whole thing of transfer. So the, we've just preceded Essentially what we've done is then foreshadow what, what the solution is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So instead of giving you a principle and then saying, here's an example, the solution is to say, here's two examples of the same underlying concept What are the commonalities? What do we see in common with these two examples? What's the commonality between heart failure and a a light bulb? It's the same phenomenon. No, sorry. um, No. What's the commonality between a heart failure and a bicycle problem? It's the same problem. What's the commonality between a fortress and a malignant tumor? And for that matter, a light bulb with a burnt out film. Right? And so, the way to achieve that, the way to get one strategy at the learning phase
0: mm-hmm.
1: get people to engage and transfer more effectively is essentially to force them to see the underlying structure. Don't just mm. tell them. This mm. is active learning at its best. And so, uh, and the differences are phenomenal. You know, in education, if we see a 10% difference, we, we shut down the lab and don't and have a party and a beer. Here I'm talking about a study where they simply had two, two strategies. One is, I give you two cases and you tell me the commonalities, or I give you a principle and then I give you the case and you have to figure out what's going on. And then I do it with new, new examples that have different contexts, but exactly the same underlying concept. And roughly speaking, you gain a gain of a factor of two mm. in application to new problems, 50% versus 25%. Factors of two just don't happen in educational circles. That's humongous that factor of two actually, think about it, requires a sample size per group of four. It's a powerful effect. It's mm. an effect size of oh, way, way the heck out there. So the point is simply that a simple manipulation, which doesn't involve any more time, any more materials or anything else, but involves a rearrangement of the materials, two problems instead of the problem in the example, a problem in a the theory, gives you an enormous advantage in terms of the ability to transfer, which. I argue is the central
0: game. So can I summarize your first two points to make sure I'm understanding it clearly? So you're describing a first example of providing, or an, uh, an educator has a point that they wanna teach. So they use an analogy like the fortress with the multiple radiating pathways. And they say, okay, here's an example of a fortress with the pathways, and then 30 minutes later, I come back and ask you about how to address a malignant tumor. And at first, I was expecting you to say that the effect size was going to be much larger. However, you're saying, well, no, it was a, a relatively small effect size 30% remembered or mm-hmm. were able to identify. Now, therefore, you're, you're saying that we need to take the additional step, not just of providing the analogy and expecting that the learners would pick up on the underlying or deep concept or deep structure of the concepts, but rather now we need to focus on providing multiple examples yes. that allow learners to then compare and contrast between examples to then identify the deep structure.
1: Essentially what you're doing is forcing active learning mm. on, on the challenge of identifying the deep structure.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Like, yeah, yeah. The, just by the manipulation of the materials, as I described, students have to actively figure out what's going on underneath these problems. That makes yes, them yes. That's again, a nice entree to the second part which we talked about, because the other thing that we always do is get into practice, mm. right? And so I teach you a t-test and then I say, go into the problems at the end of the chapter and, and hand them in a week's time. And it turns out there's some really powerful strategies there that we can use in order to facilitate Again, it's transfer. Mm. comes into two different possibilities. One is called mixed versus interleaved practice. Somebody named Chen knows about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I think I know where you're headed with this. Yes. Yeah, I
1: think we're going you to know where we're going with this And the second is distributed versus block practice. It's not going into these definitions, but that's what we're talking about. Let's go back to the statistics example. Uh, I changed my way of teaching statistics. Probably not enough, but... The classic way of teaching statistics or physiology or algebra or damn near anything is to teach a block of, have a block of instruction and then assign problems at the end of the chapter. So I'll teach you the t-test. I'll dazzle you with my fancy footwork as I derive the algebraic equation, which you can't relate to and don't understand, but it shows you how clever I am. That's the main advantage. I then sort of get you to, then I illustrate by plugging some numbers into an example. And then I turn you loose and say, okay, now do problems one, three, five, seven, and 9 at the end of the chapter. Okay? And so you do that. And, of course, there are graded difficulties. So problem 1 is a simple t-test, and problem 2 is a slightly more complicated t-test, and problem 9 is a really mad, messy t-test. But they're all t-tests. And so then I say, there, I'm done. You've proven to me that you know how to... Calculate a t-test. You know everything there is to know about t tests. Oh, and I could ask him different, part, you know, questions like how do you estimate the sample size and blah 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 blah, blah. But it's all about the T test. And then I say, and then I'm done. And so I have the exam, and students prove to me that they know how to calculate the T test and they know the formula and all that jazz. And, and they all get they all pass the course because I'm incredibly good I'm entertaining and witty and urbane, blah, blah, blah.
0: Well, if I can if I can even jump in here, and I hope this doesn't cause you to lose your train of thought, but I'm thinking about that example when I took your measurement class, and I was so proud of myself for being able to write out all the formula for G-theory and go through the multiple lines required to uh, calculate the, the coefficients. And yeah, I was patting myself on the back for that. So that's the um, example that I'm thinking of when you're talking about the T-test.
1: Except when I give statistics tests, and of course we've <laughs> never had an exam the measurement course, but in undergraduate statistics tests, I provide all the formulas. I say there will be no calculations. You, you, you can take a calculator in, but it won't help. And then I ask conceptual questions, like why is it that in this circumstance the paired T-test is more powerful than the unpaired T-test? Or why do you need an one-way analysis of variance instead of T-test? Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. Point is this: after the course is over, after everybody's proven to me how terribly much they've learned because I'm such a good instructor, January arises after the fall term course, and there's students lined up at my doors outside my door saying, "Dr. Norman, Dr. Norman, that was a wonderful course. I learned so much, but I've got this data, and I don't know what test to use." I say to myself, "Yeah, of course you don't know what test to use because I never taught you that. All you learned was." You do a t-test at the end of the t-test chapter, and you do uh-huh. a one way at the end of the one way and chapter. That's not what you need to know. Arguably, all you need to know is statistics is what button to push and what data, what credit you can ignore. But I didn't teach you what button to push because I didn't show you what are the conditions that make it one of those problems. Uh-huh. What is the underlying structure of that problem that makes it one? Now, you can't transfer all the knowledge I gave you about t-tests to the real world because you have no way to look at what are the features that discriminate between the two tests in a one-way another? So that practice at the end of the chapter is frankly stupid. It's teaching you how to apply formulas which you can't remember anyway, mm-hmm. which the computer does at about a 10 maybe a million times as fast as you can. So it's learning, you're learning all the wrong stuff. What you really want to learn is effectively what button? But there's a simple way to do it, and it's the same extension of what we were talking about before. All you do is you mix the problems up. So instead of having every problem at the end of the chapter, you have miniature tests during the course where you say, here's a bunch of examples, which test would you use? Because that's mm. all you get to know. Right? Mm. And that's called interleaved practice versus blocked practice. And the gains are enormous. As Ruth knows, because she did a PhD in it. <laughs> <laughs> so, interleave practice is sometimes called mixed practice versus block practice. Interleave, what we do is take the examples from the different chapters, mush them all together, and say which is which. Block practice is do what every teacher always did and still does, regrettably. Do them all at the end of the chapter. There you know what you've done. That's the vaccination theory of education. Anybody remember Postman and Weingartner? Art is not history, and history is not music, and music is not science, and science is not math. And science and math are major subjects, and art and history and music are minor subjects. And a subject is something you take, and once you take it, you're immune to it and never need to take it again. That's the vaccination theory of education, yeah. circa 1967. That's one of those. I measure, all I've ever memorized is one Shakespeare's a and that. <laughs> okay, so the idea of mixed versus block practice is simply to mix the stuff up. When you're in a situation where you have multiple ambiguous, ambiguous features and, mul- and difficult to discriminate categories, that's when the job is to have multiple examples on the, on the site to try and figure out in a holistic way what are the combination of features that discriminate. So here's the first study that, well, I mean, there's been brazilian bazillion studies, but in terms of medicine, Rose Hatla, for her master's thesis, the ECG diagnosis with three categories of, of um, cardiac abnormalities. One group had, si- had six examples per category. One group saw the bundle branch blocks definition and then six bundle branch blocks. Then they saw the STEMI and six STEMI. Then they saw and six. The other group saw two of each. They learned the concept, saw two examples, they learned the concept, saw two examples, and then had a practice session where the remaining 12 examples were all around together. The first group gets 30% accuracy on a, on a new test. The second group gets 45% accuracy. Again, 50% gain. 50% gain. And the interesting is no difference in time, no difference in materials. All you did was shuffle the order. Yeah. Right. Getting a 50% gain in performance. The second study along those lines is somebody named Chen R. in 2014 <laughs> did the same thing, or not, did something, an extension of it. With, with nursing students looking at heart sounds and breath sounds. Um, again, mixed versus interleaved practice was one intervention. The second was high fidelity versus low fidelity simulation, which is of no concern here. But the bottom line was that, again, if you did mixed or interleaved practice compared to block practice, you're getting gains in performance anywhere between 30% and 100% under the three different simulations. that Huge effects. No difference in time on task. No difference in the nature of the materials. All you're doing is shuffling the there.
0: Yeah.
1: That's got to be viewed as impressive.
0: Yeah. And I think it, it's powerful as an educator to know that these, this approach doesn't take more time. It takes an awareness of how Mixing the prac, or you're using mixed and interlead practice. So to provide a little bit more detail around what that looks like for someone that's not familiar with those terms is to take that those two examples from case A and compare them to the two examples from case B and to have the learner compare and contrast the similarities, the differences, the differentiating features between the two as their active learning step. And by doing that and interleaving those examples, that's what enhances learner retention. Yeah,
1: now there's two issues there. One is during the learning phase, using using that same basic manipulation during the learning phase, but also, Practice is useful, and practice is useful on two fronts. One is because it's, it's practice and you can to rehearse it and learn it more. But the second is that we really are hardwired to process examples. What mm. you've heard of dual processing theories. The fast theory is basically built on exemplars. And so most of the time, when you become an expert, most of the time you look at it and you say, I've seen it before, and here it comes again. This is one of those. Herb Simon, one of the two guys psychologists who got a Nobel price, said. A problem once solved is not a problem. All you have to do is be able to recognize that it. It's one of those. Mm. And then everything else is straightforward. He also said rec- uh, intuition is nothing more or less than recognition. In other words, mm-hmm. what we call intuition because it's magical and it's unconscious. And You say, oh, that's a, a swallowtail butterfly. And you look at it, or I'll say something like that's a
0: 56-4. Yes. Like
1: that. That's, that's an intuitive response. No, it isn't. It's recognition. You've seen mm-hmm. it before, here it comes again. Yes. And so the practice serves both those needs. There's another variant on the practice, though. And that's the labels are distributed versus mass practice. And this is almost a no-brainer. It's almost boring to even talk about it because this one, teachers had been doing naturally. In, in a sense, it's imposed on them by the external environment. Would you rather learn to, well, let's take uh, Generalizability Theory, I'll give you several options. One is Generalizability Theory, a three-day workshop, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., Theory. The second is, oh, a half-day course, you know, it's a Thursday evening, seven to nine for four weeks. Same, same total time, let's say. The third is uh, three times a week for 45 minutes, the standard university undergraduate lecture. Or the fourth is 20 minutes of, a week Six times a week. Which would you prefer? The answer is obvious, two or three. So, our intuition tells us that the problem with the workshop is basically you're drinking from the firearms. Hmm. It's all coming in too fast for you to process. I can convey information at about 10 signs of speed that you can absorb it. So, that doesn't work. On the other hand, if you have little, little things spread out too much, uh, then that doesn't work either because you've forgotten what you did before hmm. and come back to it. So there's an optimal time period in terms of spacing out the the learning, which depends on how long you want to retain it. It's complicated formulas, but we need not go into that. The basic idea simply is one of spreading out the learning rather than doing it in one one go. And again, there's many, many studies, a few relevant studies in in medicine, one in particular where... um, it was a continuing education session for GI residents about a nutrition course. They either did it for four hours, four hours either as one block, one, one half day, or an hour for four successive weeks. If you waited for three months, the group that did it an hour and four successive weeks had about three times as much learning retained as much as the group that did it once. Mm -hmm. Another simple idea.
0: I, I think it's actually quite profound. And, um, you may feel it simple simply because you're so familiar with these concepts and have been applying them for decades, but what I'm hearing from you in these two situations is you're you're describing some very practical approaches to the time of uh, uh, the time when a learner is exposed to a new concept. So that first component of interleaved practice or mixed practice when you're first introduced to a new concept and how interleaving helps facilitate learning there initially. But then the second component is that as a teacher, I also need to be mindful of continuing that repetitive practice, if you will, over time. So then the second part is that distributed uh, approach to revisiting the principles that I had talked about previously, and so that a learner would have multiple exposure across time to that. I, I think that those are two very helpful approaches yeah, we can right. take.
1: The, the nice thing about them is they're, they're at a micro level. They're really talking about what you do with the elements of instruction rather than should we have a problem-based course. or a lecture. Right. That yeah. kind of stuff leads more. The latest evidence is that, again, once again, Curriculum at that macro level doesn't make a damn difference. But at a micro level, even though students at the end of the day may turn out the same, my job is not to make them better, actually, is to make them more efficient. What I'm doing is giving them instruction so that in a smaller amount of learning time, they will presumably achieve the same goals. Because our students, you know, they're gonna get there one way or another. But it's like saying you don't need a basic science foundation. Well, you may not need a basic science foundation, but you're gonna to have to work three times. It's hard to keep up with everybody else. So it's not a bad idea, even though you look the same at the end. There's one final variant on this. This is again related to how can we optimize practice? Because practice, I don't have to tell you, practice counts, you know, the $10,000 room and all that stuff. Um, let me begin by describing the single most punitive, negative, awful piece of educational technology that was ever invented by man, the highlighter pen.
0: Oh, <laughs> I was holding my breath. I didn't know what you were going to say.
1: <laughs> well, the highlighter pen has done more damage to learning than anything I can possibly imagine because it puts students in a very unproductive mode. They sit there with a textbook in front of them, and they see a paragraph that really matters. And usually, the textbook is highlighted anyway. But you get your highlighter out, and you rub it over, and you say, I've got to remember that. and send me close the book and it's now two hours before the exam or two days before the exam, and you open it up and you see that and say, oh yeah, I remember that, and then you move on. The trouble is, you're testing recognition, as in, yes, I've seen it before, I know that because I highlighted it, but what you should be testing is recall. What, you know, what is the difference between a one-way ANOVA and two-test? And that's no longer a question of remembering that box that's got yellow link in it. And so the idea of test-enhanced learning is very simple. There's two fundamentally different ways you can study. One is to recognize, and if I tell you just go and study that chapter, that's what you'll do. You read it and say, Oh yeah, I've seen it before, here it comes again. Or the second is to recall, where instead of doing that, I will take the same amount of learning time or instructional time and um, give you many tests on the materials so where you don't see the book, you have to recall the information. And that's called test enhanced learning. Mm. So you really end up testing the concept over repeated t- over repeated intervals. And the, re- the repetition interval depends on how long you want to retain. It. But for the sake of argument, you know, once a week or once every two weeks over 12 week or something like that. And again, there's, there's another example, 48 medical students, four groups testing and no testing. Contrasting the study group with the t- mini test group, 25% accuracy on the final test versus 45% accuracy. Again, a massive effect. Yeah. And all you've done is essentially take exactly the same materials, exactly the exact same amount of learning time. All you've done is put a question mark after it.
0: Right. So, yeah. So this is really interesting because what you're highlighting is that to facilitate learning also requires different approaches rather than just saying, okay, go ahead and, quote, study the material. That would kind of, in my mind, be like, just taking a highlighter to text and just highlighting and saying there are, we can incorporate testing throughout this study time and that testing, the the actions of t- testing will then help to facilitate learning. Yes, is that-
1: this, is, this is truly formative assessment as opposed to summative assessment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Truly for the students' use. And of course, it's also something that students, good students do that anyway. They create flashcards. Mm-hmm. And things like that. Yes. But it's basically encouraging a simple idea. Recall, yes. which is recognition. Yes. And there's rules apart.
0: Right. That's yeah. True. So there, there's the active component of testing oneself or incorporating testing into our instruction. Yeah, exactly. And by through those actions, it does facilitate learning. Versus just having students passively or st- study something, read something over and over, highlight, and think that that is going to rec- uh, result in learning.
1: So, I mean, this is this is kind of the end of this particular part of the road. We began with a concept that is unfamiliar to just whatever in education called transfer, an arcane co- concept buried in psychology textbooks and more like in individual research. Well, let's translate that into first of all recognizing that that little word stands for an awful lot of what's important in education. Why do we educate people so they will have knowledge that they can bring to bear on new problem situations? And in another life of mine, which was recently as yesterday, I'm working on that particular thing. People still are hung up on the notion that you don't need knowledge after all, you have to do is. is you have good problem solving and critical thinking and self-directed learning skills. The last skill I met that I had any faith in was bicycle riding. All of these cognitive skills are, are paper tires. They don't exist. Nothing works without knowledge. And whatever we're talking about at, the, at its core is being an active expert in any domain and to being able to solve problems in that domain. And in order to do that, you need to be able to access the relevant and what we really were really talking about is three simple strategies where in terms of cost-benefit analysis, they win hands down because they've got massive benefits and effectively zero cost. Mm-hmm.
0: It's
1: infinite. If yes. you divided by zero, is infinity. infinite. So these are, these are three different strategies which are trivial to implement and which might lead to enormous educational gains that any teacher would be incredibly proud of when they give our gold medals Agreed. The sad part is, you go to OISE and try and find any course that has anything to do with any of this, you won't find it. They're worried about learning styles and classroom management and writing objectives and assessment methods and uh, self-educational skills and interpersonal skills and and on and on. It really is, there remains the two solitudes of I've encountered 50 I encountered 15 years ago, really haven't moved any work. it's quite sad because these are things that were so effective, so easy, and so ignored. Done. I'm done. And Gee, that, done that,
0: that's <laughs> a great summary. And thank you for actually su- doing my work for me and summarizing those three takeaway points. And I have to say, from personal experience and also from having known you for uh, a bit now. Yeah. <laughs> I do uh, apply these principles. I I think about these principles in my own teaching and I do apply these principles as uh, I could do better at it, but I do try to apply these principles in my own teaching practice as well. So I feel like you've offered uh, really helpful insights and actionable strategies for others to apply and to use in their own teaching practice. So thank you very much, Jeff. Really appreciate talking with you.
1: Enjoyed
0: it. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to the MAC PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Office for Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development at McMaster University's Faculty of Health Sciences. For more information on faculty development, be sure to check out our website at macpfd.ca. That's M A C. Here you can find other episodes, as well as resources for your personal and professional development. A quick shout out to our sound engineer, Ishan Mania-Panda, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Another shout out to Scott Holmes, who composed and supplied us with the music you've been listening to. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it, and be sure to tune in for our future episodes.